Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 13 of the Let Him Go Barefoot podcast. Cindy Gaddis is back for a part two with even more amazing insights about right brain dominant people. You can find our first conversation in episode 12, where she gives her backstory and lays the foundation for her research and the book she wrote, The Right Side of Normal, Understanding and Honoring the Natural Learning Path for Right Brain Children. In this almost two hour long powerhouse episode, we cover a lot more ground and dig deeper into her work. I'm not going to say anymore. I think I'll let this episode speak for itself. So enjoy. Hi, Cindy. Welcome back. Thank you. There was a part one where we dove into Cindy's book and and, and explained the definitions of right brain learners, whole brain learning, left brain, along with all the ideas and insights related to the work that Cindy has done over the last, would you say 30 years, Cindy? Yeah. Yeah. Or a long time. And you've really <laughs> done the, you've really done the work. You've been what I consider the quintessential observer and paid so close attention to your children, which also allowed you to expand that observation to other children. And you've helped so many families. So I wanted you to come back so we could dig more into this topic. And I think a great place to start would be with what does an environment look like for children who are right brain dominant. And before we get started, I want to read something from your book. On page 60, uh, it's a section on delayed formal academics, eight to 10 years. And it says, I believe that even if all the technologies have encouraged a fast paced lifestyle, we can't speed up the brain's readiness for formal learning. The idea that someone in school, that someone in some governmental agency somewhere decided that starting school sooner would equate to being better prepared for a global economy doesn't make it true. What we know about how our brain functions doesn't support the supposition. And then you go into research evidence and the formal studies that have been done about brain development, cognition, and one specifically sticks out that showed out of 8,000 studies, so I guess this was a meta-analysis, no replicable evidence exists for rushing children into formal study at home or at school before the ages of eight to 10. That's a lot. That's a big deal. (laughs) Yeah, it is a big deal. And it was really interesting when I did that, you know, uncovering of what research was out there, because I didn't know what I was going to find. (laughs) I was just, you know, writing down what I had noticed about my children. And then I wanted to see what the brain research had to say, preparing myself to see that it would contradict some of what I had to say. Right. Mm -hmm. But it didn't, it completely validated everything that I was, had been observing. And I remember um, one thing in particular, they said, you know, if there was a bunch of research done on our cars, and what the safety protocol was. And there was evidence to say what this and that safety protocol for a car was. And we ignored it mm. and, and made the cars the way we wanted to anyway. We'd be all up in an uproar. Right. But in actuality, that's what we've done to our children. Mm. All the brain, There is no brain research out there that supports early learning in uh, or early formal academics. Right. Learning, you're learning all the time. 
So yeah. let me clarify that. <laughs> um, yeah. Of course, there's learning, but formal academics, there is no evidence out there that supports it in the brain research. And yet we ignore it. And they keep saying, well, let's go earlier. Let's go earlier. And yet who's at the top? We always talk about Finland being at the top of the uh, education um, stats in the world. And they don't start formal academics till seven to eight years old. Um, they have a very different platform over there. It's really interesting. And, and so they're at the top and yet we're not replicating that mm -hmm. <laughs> something that already exists. Um, even looking back, we always have such um, high uh, value for our founding fathers and their intelligence and when, you know, they didn't start formal academics till later, and it's usually only the people who had money who could get tutors and started at, you know, 10, 11 years old for formal academics. Mm. Well, so, and if you look across the country, compulsory education age is seven for the large majority of the country, I believe, maybe six, six, seven, but it's definitely dropping. And um, I don't think that that is at all based in science. I think it's based in convenience. Correct. And, and thinking they have to do something mm -hmm. to, because we're not performing, quote unquote, the way they think Americans should. So they keep trying to look for a Band-Aid approach. Um, but here's what I did. So when I, I did have some readings, of course, when I was unschooling my children, I didn't have any of this brain research to help me understand. Um, but I did have different people's thoughts like John Holt, um, even uh, Dr. Uh, Moore, Raymond Moore, okay. uh, where I quote quite a bit from his book, Better, Better Late Than Early. Yes. Um, great book. I thought it was going to be a light read. It is not a light read. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is all about research. Um, so I had those voices saying, you know, later is better. And so in my mind, of course, you know, I was ready to go five years old, right? You're supposed to start. Um, what I did was, and, and it probably helped because I did like school. I was successful at school. My husband did well in school. So we didn't have any um, anything in our lives that would make us um, be worried uh, about uh, learning being a difficult thing. So I just told myself, listen, my husband and I are pretty intelligent people, <laughs> Mm -hmm. And, you know, I only remember X, Y, and Z from school, you know, even though I liked it, I didn't, I, I actually would be considered the statistic I remember in high school. I think it was in high school. I still thought the capital of our country, you know, Washington, D.C. was in Washington State. I was one of those people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, I was an A-B student, right? <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, so... I'm pretty smart. I'm doing well in life. We're both doing well in life. How much do I really remember? So I remember telling myself, you know, when we grew up, we played a lot in the beginning. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell myself, I'm going to do an old fashioned way of t learning, you know, raising my kids, letting them be outside, running around, playing as a base in the early years. Cause I turned out okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so even though Today, they're really pushing that, you know, four years old and five years old starting to learn to read when it wasn't till seven, you know, six and seven for us. It was like, okay, that's how I'm going to help my mind quiet. 
to say, I'm going to do it the old fashioned way. We turned out okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't remember much from kindergarten, first and second grade, except, you know, I learned to read. Um, so that was my way of allowing myself the space for my kids to have um, and trying to put the blinders on of the pressures that was happening today um, and just trying to put my head down and go with my thinking and surrounding myself with people um, who are thinking the same way Mm -hmm. as me. Um, Not necessarily exclusively. I like to hear new ideas, but I always said, I love that I had a mentor that I could call. And I called extensively that first year. Oh my gosh, I'm doubting. Oh my gosh. What about this? And she said, well, tell me what you're doing. And I'd say, you're doing amazing. She was such a a good mentor to me. I just needed someone who was, she was ahead of me. Her children were older. And so I always tell people, find someone that's ahead of you so they can say, you're okay. You're okay. They can, they can help you breathe Mm -hmm. and find someone at the same space as you. So that when you call them, you know, you're not crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried about this. So am I, okay, at least I'm not, not crazy. <laughs> I want to pause right here just to reinforce the importance of the mentorship part, because I know I experienced a need for that. There were times at the beginning when I was like, if I can just walk around and peek in people's homes so they don't know I'm there, but I can at least watch what they're doing. So I don't feel like I'm doing it, quote, wrong or that I'm missing something. And then having those who were ahead of us, especially in that early years of those different age groups, because that's, I feel like it's so natural for children to be around younger kids and older kids. And then when you have parents who have children that way as well, you're able to watch and see, and we do, we're, we're, we're imitator, imitative creatures. You know, we want to see what other humans are doing and we want to feel like our ideas are validated somewhere. So that mentor, finding a mentor is so valuable. And I, I just really wanted to you know, reinforce that, that point. I mean, it's huge. You know, Mm -hmm. I have children with autism had the same thing. I needed other parents to lean on, um, uh, adoption. I needed that. I I got through both of those things with mentors. If I didn't, it would have been a lot harder. It was hard enough. Um, so if I didn't have those people to lean on, it would have been just a lot more difficult. Um, so in every, area, I think you tend to reach out, right? Sure. I'm having chickens. Okay. I'm going to find someone else who's got chickens. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I mean, it's just a, 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 a valuable strategy, mm-hmm. right? Which then leads me to, since now I've gone through it, right? And I could look back and, and I've done all this translations. Um, I did kind of come up with a uh, infrastructure where you can maybe lean on a little bit um, in when you're starting or where wherever you are. So I remember actually listening to you, Missy, with somebody, and you'd say, you know, children are changing all the time. Right when you think you've got them figured out, they change, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And I discovered a three-year cycle. Okay. Five to seven, eight to ten. 11 to 13, 14 to 16, 17 to 19. Those were what I was seeing as the stages. Um, Are they obviously cut and dry? Of course not. Mm -mm. Um, But in around those timeframes is what I I noticed 
changes happening. Now, would you say that you've noticed those changes? Like you said, you saw that you paid attention first and then you came back and added the research to it. So would you say that those particular stages are different because the brain has been changing? Correct. Okay. And that's that. I'm, t- I'm just telling you, Missy, it was so exciting. <laughs> I mean, I was just blown away. I mean, because I didn't have any of this. Yeah. I remember I, I was not looking into having words for what we had experienced until my oldest was a teenager. Mm. So we'd gone through it. And so when I started feeling a need and when I was helping people, because I was mentoring, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, I wanted to still learn too. And people were plying me to write a book, write a book. So I start looking into it. I'm just blown away that it all correlated. Yeah. So I had gone to a conference for Thomas Jefferson education. And, and I'm, as I'm listening, in, and they were talking about these stages, uh, of course, because classical education has stages. But I remember listening to his stages thinking, yeah, I'm hearing that, but it's not, I, I agree. I agree. I think there were stages now that they're putting it in my mind. And this is before and I did any of the brain research yet. Okay. But I don't think mine looked that way. So I went back to think about it. And I did start seeing, you know, some uh, similar ways that I uh, worked with my kids in their environment. And so I started writing those down and I called it the collaborative learning process. I came up with this because it was more collaborative Mm. in my opinion. It was more, um, I called it developmental. I saw them because again, I wasn't following any thing. I was not following any system. At the time when I started unschooling, there wasn't even an unschooling system. I think sometimes you can find unschooling systems now um, because there's so many people doing it and you have the internet and people want structure and all that. But anyway, I was just kind of going along. So I wrote out this collaborative learning process. I got very excited about it. Like, oh, I think this is what I was doing with my children. And it was three-year increments. So I do thank them for putting that in my mind. So I'm going to kind of give you a little lowdown of it because it does end up again. So I write this down and then some years later I go look at the brain research and to me it supported my collaborative learning process, Uh, my developmental stages. And that's why I almost call myself, instead of a non-schooler now, I can call myself a developmentalist. mm -hmm. You know, I, I, and, and unschooling, especially from five to 11, the way you typically see unschooling is exactly fits developmentally and brain research. Right. Now, I feel like I, I, I veer off a bit from 11 on. Uh, that's where our formal education started with my kids was especially 11 to 13, which probably freaks a lot of people out. <laughs> but again, if you look at the brain research and history and et cetera, it, it actually correlates. So to give just a little backdrop of what, what an, an ideal, whatever, a right brain learning system is, to me, anybody, it could be right brain or left brain, um, at my website, there's a post called the natural learning development for right brain children. I'll, I'll send you a link, Missy, so you can put it in the, in the show okay. notes. And then, um, maybe we could also put the collaborative learning process. If you look at those, so that chart, I put that chart that we talked about last time in the natural learning development for right brain children that shows this new quote unquote scope and sequence. And then my collaborative learning process breaks down 
the five to seven, eight to 10, 11 to 13. What did I do with my children to support that learning stage? Okay. So that will give people a lot of information just on the website. Here's the other thing I thought about when I was doing my stages, I started thinking, and I might've done this, especially when my, my kids became teenagers. I said, what would make, what would make a perfect job for somebody? You know, you always hear the adage, um, find work you love. So you'll never work a day of your life. Right. Mm-hmm. I think Confucius said that. <laughs> um, anyway, I thought, well, let's really be realistic. Let's say you find a great job that you love. Is it all love? Is it like a hundred percent? You love it. Or are there things that you have to do? Right. We talk about that a lot, non-schooling that naturally some things are going to be more difficult to get through. And, and because you you love what you're doing. It's you, you do it. Yeah. It's manageable because you have a goal in mind and you're focused and you recognize that sometimes you have to do the boring stuff to get to where you really want to go. Yes. Mm -hmm. So my left brain self, (laughs) (laughs) you know, has to have some words, right. To go with it. So I thought a 60, 30, I called it the 60, 30, 10 principle. Mm -hmm. If I can find an environment that 60% what I love, then if I have to do 30% of the harder stuff to get to the 60%, I'm going to do it. And then I called, then I put the 10%, the 10% was different based on different stages. The 10% when they were five to 11 was my mentoring, my uh, enticing the environment. I did 10% involvement, which seems really low, right? So five, so, so the five to seven, remember I said, that's when I didn't do a lot of things. That's when they're showing me how they learn what they like. So 6% of the time they're pursuing their own interests. I'm not messing with it. I'm not interfering with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 30% of the, would, I'm sorry, would you, would you say you are massaging the environment though? You are allowing, you're adding resources, you're supporting their interests by either taking them places or coordinating events. And that's the 30%. Oh, that's the 30%. So 60%, they did their own thing. I wasn't, I wasn't directing them. They were doing their own projects. My kids were really engaged. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, some people would say, you know, playing with Lego all day is not engagement, but that was engagement. You know, if he was playing with Legos all day or drawing all day, my daughter was playing with her stuffed animals a lot going out watching ants yeah (laughs) um and that they would get to do that 60 percent of their day and then 30 percent of the day or 30 percent of their time i would be adding expanding or enhancing what i was seeing oh okay if i saw my son was really into sharks i thought well when i go to the bookstore i'd see a or or the library i'd see some shark books I'd, i'd bring them home and I'd say, hey, I noticed these shark books I thought you might enjoy. I've noticed you've been interested in sharks. Or I might then go get some whale books and say, I saw you were interested in sharks, so I thought you might be interested in whales. So I got some of this stuff, you know, and I would just leave it for him. Or I saw this National Geographic documentary coming on. I thought you might want to watch it. Because remember, at that time, <laughs> there was no internet yet. Yeah. Um, so we were doing more physical things. And, you know, there's something called, I know, strewing that was made popular mm-hmm. um, in unschooling. But I'll admit, when I first heard what they defined strewing to be, I didn't actually like it. Um, what she was saying, strewing, what I understood strewing to be was, you know, put things in their environment to discover, right? Okay. Um, 
and they'll stumble on it and go, ooh, cool. I just, I found that, um, I found that dishonest. (laughs) So what I had always done, which I was doing a similar thing, but I would tell my kids, yes, hey, I noticed that you've been interested in sharks. And so I thought you would like this whale stuff plop. Now they could do with it as they wanted, the same as strewing, right? But the cool thing about telling them is he's looking at me. I remember seeing their eyes going, whoa, she's paying attention to me. Yes. It's a connection. It's a connection. You're missing connection by just strewing without telling them because it seems a little dishonest to me. Um, I'm just going to throw that out there. (laughs) Um, I would tell them and they'd go, whoa, she's paying attention and she's showing value for what interests me. And, but yet she's also still allowing me to choose yes. if I engage or not in what she is showing me. And that can also be that I would see, for instance, I think of the Shel Silverstein. I happened to find out about Shel Silverstein. I'd never heard about his poetry. And I thought, oh, you know, my oldest is really at a stage that he finds things funny, you know, but he doesn't engage with that kind of um, literature. Maybe I'll get it for him and I'll let him know, mm-hmm. hey, I saw these interesting, you know, they're kind of funny and they're visual. I thought you might think they're kind of funny if you want to take a look. Well, he didn't. So I just yeah. put it on the shelf. He knew it was there. Two years later, he finds them again and picks them up. But it's not that he didn't know they were there. Mm-hmm. He would probably remember. I remember my mom telling me about this. But now I find it later and I engage with it later. Um, so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about that I'm going to expand. Like you said, let's go, I didn't noticing you're, mm-hmm. you're into sharks. Let's go to the aquarium, right? You want to go to the, oh yeah. You know, I noticed you're into ancient Egypt. Let's go to the museum for natural history, right? Or let me, you know, I saw this really cool resource. Someone told me about, about Egypt. You might, you know, time travelers, um, you might think that's cool. So it's that kind of thing. Or you like ancient Egypt. Would you like Rome? You know, so I'm telling them and I'm, that's why I'm calling it collaborative learning process. I'm collaborating that way. In the early years, you're non-verbally collaborating. You're not verbally collaborating because a lot of times they don't know how to verbally collaborate yet. That doesn't happen till 11 to 13 typically. So what I call non-verbal collaboration is I'm watching them right. and I'm hearing what they have to say non-verbally, Right. And then I'm going to engage with them verbally because I want them to learn verbal collaboration. So I'm modeling it, even if they can't verbally collaborate with me okay. early. Can I stop for just a second? I want to want to touch on the strewing sure. thing just briefly, because I think okay. about it in terms of the younger kids, particularly mm-hmm. when somebody's just starting out homeschooling and kids maybe are preschool to early school age, um, the strewing that I have read about and heard to be important, not important, but that has seemed to work is not about necessarily manipulating the environment, but offering other ideas that the kids may not know to go get themselves. So because developmentally, they're not going to go to the shelf and pull off the thing and open the box and do you know what I mean? So maybe the parents have things not hidden, but just not in plain sight. So kind of like the out of sight, out of mind thing. So would you say then that if you're strewing by placing things in the environment so that your kids even know they exist, there's a difference between that versus I want them to know about this because I find it valuable. Right. And I would do that like the Shel Silverstein mm-hmm. thing. 
he didn't, he wasn't showing me that he would be interested in that, but he was showing me enough that that could be his style right. of, of interest. So I'm going to go get it and, and, and show it mm-hmm. to him and say, this was a cool thing, or I might stumble on anything, but I'm, I'm the difference is I'm going to tell him about it. Gotcha. So, and then the 10% was um, me writing down if I needed to write down what I was observing. You know, in the early years, like a lot of us, I wrote down, in, you know, for my own benefit. Mm-hmm. This is what I saw them learning, you know. You know, they were doing this. And I would write little journal entries, um, what, I, what I was observing and such. Um, so that was five to seven. So five to seven, they're just wanting to play. They're wanting to engage. They're, listen. If you have a left brain learner, you may have them say, I want little workbooks. Abby, my, my daughter did. She'd say, we'd go to the store because we were out and about, right? They'd see this or that. We, yeah. I mean, going to the bookstore was, you know, our date. Yep. <laughs> we always went to bookstores. We always went to libraries, right? right? And she'd see the workbooks and she'd want to do the, you know, get me the workbooks. And I just didn't make her do things. I wanted to see what she did with the workbook. You know, sometimes she did what was in the workbook and then sometimes she drew her little drawings all over the (laughs) workbook. So it was really interesting to see what Mm -hmm. she did with it. Um, And, you know, she might do half the book and then she abandoned Mm -hmm. the book. Right. But that was showing me something. It was definitely showing me that she had some left brain traits. Right. That she was because I can tell you right now, my strongly right brain children never asked for a workbook. Okay. Okay. I was going to ask you about that because one of the concerns I know people have when they homeschool or unschool, that there's this idea that if we don't present them with information and or activities, then the kids won't challenge themselves. So I, I of course, push back on that and say, I believe all humans want to learn, especially if they're engaged, their environment's um, rich and they have lots of collaborative opportunities and people who care about them that their ability to pick up information and to then pursue knowledge that speaks to them. And that, especially now that we're talking about the brain dominance that matches their brain dominance, there will be testing, challenging, trying new things, whether you're right brain dominant or left brain dominant. So what you're saying then is that you've noticed children who tend to be more left brain dominant will grab those workbooks and will do that sit down kind of typical busy work yes. type stuff. Yes. Okay. That's what I saw. All right. Um, of course I only had one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now I will agree. Cause I remember hearing, I would every so often I would hear people come um, on my groups and, and say their child just didn't have an interest and they weren't engaging. And, you know, I had natural engaging children, but then I had my last child, <laughs> my number seven child. Who then I said, oh, I think this is the type of child people are talking about. Um, I got gotcha. you. He is, he was, he's extroverted. He is a outdoor, um, hands-on moving person. And so, you know, his play was construction vehicles, playing, uh, riding his bike, climbing trees. You know, he was not listening to read alouds. He could not sit still for that. He was not um, doing projects in the house. Um, he was outdoors. And so it appears, appeared that he was doing nothing. He was not interested in anything, right? He wasn't doing the things like my other kids who would engage in history type things, or she was writing stories, 
or my son was playing with math manipulatives, right? That makes us feel mm-hmm. warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he was outside climbing trees. Okay. So if this child was in that school setting, he would have been referred probably very quickly, right? Yes, for to ADHD, sort of, which yeah. we'll be talking about. So right. he he needed more body time. Mm-hmm. Right. So from five to seven, he was doing a lot of body time outside. And then his downtime was TV, okay. which I know worries people. Right. And I realize ADHD people seem to really like TV because it, it's, it's great input. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he also just needed to be engaged. He was my, uh, now I will say that my introverts and the ones that naturally engaged in what I would call project-based learning, they was just naturally always engaged in a project. I did not see a need for outside activities till eight to 10 years old, hmm. so five to seven. They were perfectly happy to be engaged. Of course, I did have five children and seven children at, at, at different points. So they had each other. They had their own playmates and they really enjoyed being together and being friends with each other. Um, so they had the outlet, but we also had neighbor kids that they would have be friends with and such. So they all had friends. Uh, we also were heavily engaged with our church community. So they had their access to friends, but we didn't do, I didn't put them in sports. I didn't put them in classes or gymnastics or anything like that from eight to, uh, from five to seven until my extrovert. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Then he, because he was showing me he was needing activity, I did put him in soccer at five and six years old and t-ball because he was showing me he did need that. So extroverts may, because he is my only extrovert. I have social introverts, but he was my only true extrovert. And so he gets energy from being with people. And he was my youngest. You know, if he was in the middle of the pack, then maybe he would have gotten his outlet, right? With the other siblings. Okay. But because he was my last, he didn't have as many to engage with. And I think it's important to make a note here to talk about the temperament of our children, the introvert, extrovert, or somewhere in between, and the brain dominance. So you've got two pieces right here we're talking about. So And it it just always goes back to observation. Observe, pay attention. Yes, it all interrelates. Yes. It's not like you have to say it. Now I got to look at the extrovert. Mm -hmm. Then I got to look at, you know, it. they're going to show you if you give them the space to show you, I mean, it was obvious he's out there climbing trees, riding bikes, trying to play with the friends next door, you know, things like that. He was yeah. just busy, 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 busy. Uh, he could not focus. He, like you said, in school, he would have mm-hmm. not succeeded. Um, in fact, I did put him in oh, a preschool because I was trying to write my book. I thought, well, if I put him in preschool, I'll have three hours to focus on my book. No, I had to end up pulling him out because, I actually had more time having him home. Oh wow! Than having to be called almost every day from the school because basically what happened is, if they didn't engage him enough, because they were trying to do like, you know, inside mm-hmm. focus work, he because he was such a great people person, he would just mess with oh my the teacher. God. Like, how can I make her crazy? <laughs> because I'm really mm-hmm. bored here, and so let me just make her mm-hmm. go crazy. Because that gives me a lot of good input. Right. right. He just needed that busyness, that movement. <laughs> yes. And I, that's so funny because I remember asking him about, well, what's your discipline process? Oh, well, we, we never have to do that. And we never, you know, we'd send him to the administrator, but we've never had to do that. Oh, he was in the administrator's office every day. Wow. 
Wow. And I'd have to come pick him up. And I'd come pick him up. And the administrator didn't even know how to deal with him. I'd just look at him. He'd look at me. We had such a great connection. Yeah. I'd go, Joe, why do you do this to me? Let's go. And he'd just come like, okay, this is what I wanted in the first place. <laughs> this is not working for me. Yeah. And I'm just going to entertain myself to the yeah <laughs> to the detriment of these adults. <laughs> who I'm sure I look at him like he's this horrible child, but he was not like that at home because I could engage him the way he needed to be. Right. Well, it goes back to like, people always like, I wish kids came with a manual. I'm like, they do. It's them. What? Just pay attention. You just have to listen. And, and so I did, did actually write my book while he was at home. How about that? It did work. But anyway, going back. So then eight to 10, so five to seven, they're showing you, mm-hmm. they really are showing you how they learn. They're showing you if they're extroverts or introverts. Um, and you can engage, you know, and expand their world without having to do formal academics at that point. Um, and then eight to 10, uh, which cor- correlates with the transition time for the brain. Uh, I noticed that they start doing like what I call a smorgasbord. They start to like to learn a lot of different things, not just their interest anymore. They're more willing to engage in things that were not in their interest area and find it fascinating and then bring it back to their interests. I call it the, mm-hmm. the smorgasbord time. Um, and 6% again, always remains the same. 60% of the time they pursue their own stuff. 30% of the time I was I was expanding their world. I was expanding their interests. I was being a resource to them. Um, and then again, then but in the 8 to 10, 10% of the time, I did what I called short teaching moments. Okay. So I thought, you know, I think they'd be willing, since they're ready to engage a little bit, they could be ready for me engaging, right? So now I'm going to come in with... You know, do we do do a little reading lesson? Do we do a little math stuff? You know, I get my little popsicle sticks. I ask my <laughs> children, do you remember the popsicle sticks with the macaroni on it? Yes, and my and my daughter says, I ate the macaroni. <laughs> so, oh, thanks. We've Smack. had plenty of manipulatives that went missing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I would just, I would watch once again, and I'd see a time. I wouldn't go in the middle of their project time, right? I would start knowing their rhythms, you know. My oldest liked to crawl out hmm. of bed and do something creative. And his focus time would be afternoon. Then I'd have my third child. He wanted to go be productive right when he came out of bed. And then he wanted to be more, you know. So everyone had their different rhythms. And I was also watching that, you know. I'm not right. going to ask my person who wants to be creative at 10 in the morning to do a math thing. Because he's probably not going to be engaged like he would if I did it even in the evening. He especially liked doing things late evening, like 8, 9 o'clock at night. So, you know, I would kind of watch where their ebbs and flows were. And I'd come and I'd say, hey, will you do this math thing with me? You know, I want to show you something. And literally it would be 10 minutes, short teaching moments, 10 minutes or less. And then they would find it very interesting They would because here's the thing. Okay, so collaboration is two-sided, right? So I'm re- I've been respecting their mm-hmm. 60% time, and they know it. Mm-hmm. So when I come with my 10%, they're going to give me a give me a carrot. You know, they're going to give me, <laughs> I'll give you some time, Mom. You're so kind to us. It's not that they're actually saying that in their mind, but that's what I've created, right? This, I've... Well, it's that respect. You respect them, they respect you. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, it's that respect yep. back, the trust and trust. I've given you all this trust, yep. and now trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to give it to me because you trust yep. me and you respect me. Exactly. It's it's a two way street that I'm going to start saying. Yeah, I want I want to have some of my say in it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm left brain. I need some <laughs> left brain stuff done here. <laughs> It makes me feel warm and fuzzy. I, I let you feel warm and fuzzy. Now I'm going to feel warm and fuzzy. And so we would, do, but I would also try to do it in a way that worked for them, right? I'd watch their ebbs and flows. I would do it in a way that, you know, manipulative based or visual based, or my older son liked uh, uh, mental things. He could do everything mentally very easily. We'd okay. do this little mental sparring because he would enjoy that thing. And then 10% was, um, no, yeah. no, the 10% was my short teaching moments. That's right. 30%, I was still um, uh, expanding their world and all that stuff. So so see how that's very unschooling from 5 to 7 and 8 to 10. Mm-hmm. But I still had this little, because my left brain did create this little mm-hmm. rhythm, because I need little rhythms, right? And I'm sure people think, how did you do it with seven children? Well, that's exactly right. So this going in between my children all day long that was me just bouncing around right bouncing around from kid to kid and then do my own thing so it just happened to be I did have children that I could do that with and they all just kind of we all found our own little space um and it worked I I I rarely taught children in a group uh I might do it like Abby my two oldest were doing something together and I might do the math manipulative with them together um and I read aloud for whoever wanted to listen to the read aloud. Um, reading aloud was a, a, a core for me. I loved reading aloud. So I'd say reading aloud time. And I would, again, look for parts of the day. Okay, 2 o'clock, there's an ebb. Everyone, let's do read aloud. Okay. And then they'd get their things that they were going to do while I read aloud. And we'd read aloud. Sometimes it was at 2. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was at 5. Sometimes it was at 11. You know, whatever time ebb flowed with the majority. Um Oh, and I so, want to highlight the need to pay attention to the rhythm simply because we do have this, I think, preconceived notion that learning happens between this hour and this hour. And I know for sure, like I have a, I have a night owl child who's very much has the rhythm of her father. And so she would be doing at like age, you know, five, six, seven, she'd be like, mom, can you teach me math? And we would pull out the dry erase board at like 10 o'clock at night. And mm-hmm. she's like doing math stuff. And we were always laughing about it, but it was almost like this little part of her brain turned on at that point. That's also yes. when she want me to read in bed, like really, um, um, things that challenged her mind, you know, like these, uh, pattern books where or we'd be mazes or she would do puzzles like on my kindle there was a puzzle thing that the pic the picture was there and then it would separate into all these different pieces mm-hmm. and she would drag the pieces together to create the puzzle you know and i'd always be like why it's 10 o'clock at night why are you doing that because i'm over here about to fall asleep <laughs> yes and i i do i think i found that there's a large amount of highly if you're highly right brain dominant you tend to be a night owl mm-hmm. <laughs> because your creativity does come bursting out at it night. does it's wild so i've kind of laid the foundation there it does start shifting at 11 to 13 it's all on my website i also know we wanted to talk and i, I figured let's kind of concentrate here in, in the early stages um and talk about these other things that can um make people worried okay and give some thoughts to that okay from the 5 to 11. So in this earlier age, 5 to 10-ish, 11, where are those, what are the issues that pop up for children and for families, especially when we're looking at that school model 
and people use the school model sometimes and try to superimpose it onto their homeschool model, what are the issues that pop up and why? I think we could do it from dyslexia, autism, ADHD. Okay, let's do it. So I wanted to talk about dyslexia because in the elementary age, I believe that learning to read is a milestone for most people. If you can teach your child to read, that's a big relief to people. Sure. And once they're reading, they can access so many things and so they can breathe better and that they've done one of their big jobs. And for the right brain dominant learner, learning to read between beginning to learn to read between eight and 10 years old is normal. I need to have that information out there. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't learn to read earlier than that. And it doesn't mean they're not going to be reading later than that. But eight to 10 is a typical time frame for right brain learners. And it is because of their three dimensionality on my website, There are several posts I have written about dyslexia and the connection to three-dimensionality. So three-dimensional means I can view a cat from the front, from the back, from the top, from the bottom, right? It's a three-dimensional item, and I can view it from all angles, right? So what happens, that that is their natural way that their brain is sending messages to their eyes to see. Because you remember, it it actually kind of blows my mind sometimes because I think the eye is seeing, but it's actually the brain sending the signal for the eye to see, to translate what it sees. Wow. You know, eyes are just reflecting, right? The brain is, is translating what it sees. So it's sending a message to the brain to, since it, prefers the right brain dominant to be three-dimensional. If you're left brain, that brain is sending this message to translate two-dimensionally. That's why they can be ready at five, six, and seven in their core strength years to do the letters because they see two-dimensionally more quickly. So if a right brain person is being pushed right at that age, they can see the letter E from the top from the bottom, from the left, and from the right. So when I saw my son writing his letters backwards, I remember coming up to him saying, why did you write your E that way? (laughs) And he looked at, you know, now I don't say, he's used to collaboration from me. Mm -hmm. He knows I don't just randomly say something. Right. (laughs) Without a purpose. So he quickly looks at me, why do you ask? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like seven or eight years old, Uh right? And I said, well, because most people write it this way. And so I wrote it. And then he says, why? Yeah. Why is that a rule? (laughs) Why is that a rule? And think about it. Uh Why is that a rule, right? Yeah. And, you know, he's an artist. Mm -hmm. Can't you draw a cat going that way? Yeah. Or that way? Yeah. Why can't you draw an E going that way or that way? It makes sense. And that's why the It makes sense. Yeah. The P, the P. Does it not? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, the, the traditional mix ups, the P and the B or whatever, because it, it's just a flip of each other. Right. Right. So why wouldn't they flip it? Mm-hmm. Because they're three dimensional thinkers. So I, I mean, I had to come up with a reason. <laughs> <laughs> like, why do we do it that way? So my, I thought it was a clever left brain response, which was, well, maybe because if we all write the letters the same way, we can decode it faster. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think that's logical, right? I mean, that's the whole... I 
think that's logical. And he, he accepted that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he started writing his E's correctly. And now he, he flipped his J's. I don't know why. J and S. Mm-hmm. Okay. J and S he did till he was 10. He flipped. Um, but I just saw it as being an artist. It's his three-dimensionality. So when you see that happening, that is what you're dealing with is a three-dimensional person that is interpreting two-dimensional because letters on a piece of paper is two-dimensional. You can't see all the sides, right? Yeah. That's why sometimes one of the fun things you can do is do like black letters because they then could do the three-dimensionality of the letters. They find that fun. Um, and, uh, and just so you know, I like to throw little tidbits out there. Printing stems from the left side of the brain. Cursive stems from the right side of the brain. Drawing stems from the right side of the brain. Interesting, right? So when sometimes you can find that cursive writing will come easier to a right brain learner than print writing. The other thing you can say, because you can sit there and say, why is he drawing these intricate things, but he can't print these letters very well? right? Because they are coming from two different sides of the brain. And the other thing you can say though, is when you print your letters, draw them by saying, draw your letters versus write your letters. It may help it go to the right side of the brain and they can draw them better. Well, you know, I used to spend time practicing my cursive writing. That's what I did as a child. Yeah. I sat down and I was like, I'm going to perfect my cursive writing. And I used to love calligraphy. So would calligraphy. Yes, or- yes calligraphy, Japanese writing, mm-hmm. right, is all caricature. And it's like, so it, it, it just plays on the, the, the beauty, the art form, God. right? Cursive seems more artistic. Yeah, for right? sure. Than print. Yep, yep. So I, I find that interesting. That's, I, I like to throw little tidbits out there for people. When I want to throw this little piece in real quick too from your book, just this one statement, because there's a global evidence section that you have. Mm-hmm. And it says, we have more reading difficulties now than ever before. And this just is to say, to reemphasize the, the issues that we're seeing are not necessarily issues. It's more we're pushing and pressuring for things to happen when they're not really, their brains are not ready for that to happen. Right. Because think about it. Back in the day, it was six and seven and it was a slower process to read. And I think it was more like second grade. They wanted more fluency, right? Mm -hmm. We're introducing it in first grade and now they're introducing it in preschool. Yeah. And then wanting fluency in kindergarten. Well, that's the five to seven where they're just trying to be in their, their strength and you're putting them in two dimensionality. And so they're, I, I do believe when we put our right brain learners who are supposed to be three dimensional in an environment that's pressing the two dimensional, it can really mess up their brains. Mm. Their brains are like, you know, because some dyslexic people say it moves around on the paper. Well, because they're trying really hard, the brain is still sending the signal three, 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 three-dimensional, right? Yeah. And so what, what are they supposed to do with that? But if you let them not have to do the two-dimensional, let them do all the 3D being in their natural world. That's what it is. Hearing stories, oral stories. Because remember, when they hear oral stories or read alouds to them, they're translating what they're hearing into pictures in their minds. So you're helping them. So I always tell tell them, it's not that you're doing nothing from five to seven. You are absolutely doing something from five to seven. That is helping them amass a library of pictorial images. 
Oh, that's a good way to put it. I like that. They need a library of images in which they're going to use when they learn to read. If they don't have the, the masked visual library that they need, they didn't get to get good at hearing the verbal be translated to a, to the picture. Because think about that. A visual, I mean, an auditory translation is going to be easier than I have to decode and then translate. So I'm already used to taking words I hear and put them into my pictures. Now, at, when 8 to 10 comes, I can now see the word, now that the brain is ready to go into th- uh, left brain things, and I can translate just like I had learned to translate orally. Yeah. That makes yeah, sense? Sure. It really all makes sense. It does. <laughs> and especially, well, and, and just thinking about my two kids, I mean, you know, I, I thought that I would end up teaching them early how to read and blah, 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 because of all of my schooling. And I was Mm -hmm. noticing that my son was kind of pushing back on me. So I backed off. And then he didn't fully read until age nine. But when he started reading, it was like, Mom, give me a word to spell. And I was giving him hard words. And by by 10, 11 years old, he was spelling like high school level words. Same with my daughter. Yeah, she was the same age nine. It was when it all clicked for her. And it was like, yep. you know, just seeing the words, um, playing around with language, me reading to her, her, she would recite full books to me, like just completely recite them. Yes. Movies, movies they can recite. Uh, they know right where things are. Yeah. In book. It's, it's crazy. I always call it going from zero to hero. Uh, if given that time frame, right. I, my oldest was also nine and he's considered gifted. Okay. So he would have been labeled twice exceptional. Uh, Twice exceptional means you're gifted. You have a high intelligence quotient, right? IQ, but you're not performing. What the heck? You must have disabilities too. Oh, God. No, that's not what it is. They're often the right brain learners. Wow. They're gifted right brain learners that they're doing their, they're just going in their, their time frame of eight to 10. So they're doing it normal because you think gifted is supposed to be early for everything. That's not true. It just means that you can process quickly or you know, in a certain way, whatever it is, that your IQ is just high. It doesn't mean that you aren't going to still follow your scope and sequence for a right brain learner. Yeah. So that's why at nine also, he went from zero to hero, yeah. right? He just had a few lessons. All of a sudden, he's reading an adult novel. Yeah. And I remember seeing him reading it. <laughs> And he just started reading and I said, are you understanding that? And he said, enough. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that word enough <laughs> is when right brain per- people first learn to read, they are sometimes skipping every other word in every third word. They only have to pick up enough words to catch a visual. Yep. So a lot of times what they're doing is they're skimming across the top of words. I'd like to call it that. They skim across the top of words to catch a visual. They don't have to read all the words, just enough. Mm-hmm. And then over time, but give it time, a couple, two or three years, they will be reading all the words. But that's why having children read aloud to you as a measure, if they are reading, is not a good skill or strategy for a right brain learner. Yeah, it's very difficult. And a lot of kids hated that in school. You know, they didn't want to read out loud. Yes. And it's, mm-hmm. it's probably because they were right brain now. <laughs> Because then what would happen is they don't know they're skipping words. But if you're told that you have to read out loud, then you notice right. you're, re- you're skipping words because your teacher's telling you what's wrong with you. You've skipped that word or you're, you're right. Yep. And then mm-hmm. a right brain learner is very highly sensitive often. 
And then they're going to say, what is wrong with me? And nothing is wrong with them. I remember getting this one woman at a conference and I'm saying all of this. And she says, oh my gosh, that's what happened to me. I'm like, okay, let's hear the story. (laughs) She said, (laughs) so I was a struggling reader, dyslexic, all this stuff, went to college. In this particular college, they required them to take a speed reading class as their first class because they want to teach them how to get through right studies. And she goes, oh, great, a dyslexic person having to take a speed reading class. (laughs) This should be fun. (laughs) And she said, she listened to their strategies, how to speed read, and she said she basically was cured from dyslexia. Now, this is an unusual situation, but she had been taught meticulously through phonics to read the way a left brainer is taught to read. And it creates, in, in, in the books are out there on dyslexia, they say there is an, an, a very particular way dyslexic people read. It's a, a, a very unusual dyslexic way, okay? And she, she basically, and so they didn't teach her the right way. This basically retrained her brain. Somehow her brain could pick it up and she could read normally. Mm. <laughs> she said she never understood what happened to her. She just accepted that she was not dyslexic anymore. She could read at a, you know, fast because basically her brain was able to redo it. Um, a lot of times we can't get that, but that's why mm-hmm. there, we have to be really careful with these extensive programs. Cause here's the thing. They will start saying some people are concerned. I remember having a friend that said, yeah, my daughter's dyslexic. I said, well, when did you start intervening at five? I said, oh. when did it work? Eight. I said, is it that it took three years for this program to work? <laughs> Or is yeah. it because she finally got to the right time frame for it to work, but then she still stayed a stilted reader and she had a negative connotation to print. So she yes. called herself a bad reader. Oh my gosh. Oh, there's so much to this conversation. There's so much. So this is really important. Eight to 10, I just feel like you shouldn't look into dyslexia till, dyslexia till after 10 years old. That's my mm-hmm. personal thinking. Builder people tend to be later uh, near the 9, 10, 11 mark because they're so spatially focused um, than visually focused. So my builder son wasn't till he was 11 that he became a reader. And then at 14, he was carrying around college level computer books. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but he didn't learn. He, he started with Bob books at 10. Yeah. And then at 14's reading college books, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not that they, it, what people don't understand is if you start at 10, it's not like you're starting with a five year old. No. You're starting with a 10 year old's brain that has a huge encyclopedia full of images Correct. in their mind of what all these words mean. And, and just like. experience with learning, as long as we didn't create a negative connotation. And that's why that became a mantra for me create positive relationships with the various subjects, with print, yeah. with math, which are the two major things. That, and that's the other thing I think of. How many adults do we know that say they're not good at math or they don't like to read? If we have created so many adults that that is how they feel about it. See, I love reading. And of mm-hmm. course, I wanted all my kids to love to read. Well, I changed that. Instead of saying, I want them to love to read. I changed it to, I want them all to have a positive relationship with print. Right. That became my mantra. Because I think we also have a stereotype in our mind 
of a good reader is one that reads for pleasure. If you really identify in your mind when you call someone, oh, she's a bookworm, it's because she tends to have a bunch of books that are pleasure reading books. But what about the information reader? My oldest is an information reader. He never would read book cover to cover. He would have all this information he's seeking. Or my, my builder son, who was a, a instructional reader, he also didn't read for pleasure often, but he was always reading for instruction. Give me instruction books. I want to know how to computer program. I want to know how to put my Legos together, etc., etc. I'm looking for instruction. So at first I would have been prone to not calling them bookworms, but mm. they all had books in their life Yeah, that they were using for the purpose that was beneficial to them as people. Yeah. Well, and I, I read for pleasure, but also for information. My brother nicknamed me book when I was probably like nine years old because I was always reading. <laughs> My yes, oldest I was brother. A huge reader, <laughs> but all pleasure. Yeah, but I read encyclopedias. I would get in the floor in my hallway and pull down encyclopedias and be like, hmm, what topic today? And then I would read yes. pleasure books too. So I had both. Yes. I would now, do that too because yeah. that's what we had was uh, encyclopedias. So I just wanted to read. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so. Same thing. Same thing. <laughs> right? So anyway, so with dyslexia, my children were um, 9, 5, 11, Four, seven, thirteen. In fact, I'd call him more 15, 13. Wow. So it's all over the place. And here's the thing that I put in my book that I always help people understand. People want to equate reading with intelligence. Oh, you read so, oh, that four-year-old must be so smart, right? And the 13-year-old must be so dumb. It's not, it's, it's how it matches up. The four-year-old is my child with high levels of autism. He knew his alphabet at one. His perseveration was the alphabet. So I thought, I bet you if I teach him to read at four, I could teach him to speak through reading. Literally, he learned to read before he could speak. How about that? <laughs> that was a, a skill set he had, but his reading only went to about third to fourth grade level. And it's still that way as a 29-year-old. I see. My son, who was nine, obviously has a gifted IQ. And he learned at nine. It has nothing to do with intelligence. Now, my four-year-old has IQ in the mentally retarded zone, right? And then, so, but yet he learned to read at four. I see. Wow. Right? So that was just happened to be an interesting discovery or a circumstance, circumstance that happened that I can help people understand. It has nothing to do with intelligence. Well, thank you for sharing that. And also, you know, that goes back to the, the, um, the author of the book, Better Late Than Early. Mm -hmm. and, and not to say that necessarily that it's always better, but it also just, it makes you open up your understanding of what things look like and where did your ideas come from that says this is better than this. Right. Now, do I think there may be some highly right brain children whose brain has a difficult time moving from three-dimensional to two-dimensional? Quite possibly. I do think it will be rare. We have a lot of people with dyslexia. And of course, now they're coming to discover, oh, they accidentally discovered, right, that dyslexic people are smart. <laughs> like, oh, mm, yeah. we started realizing that there's a high level of entrepreneurs who are dyslexic. There's a high level of, you know, XYZs. And it's because of this three-dimensionality, um, all the stuff that they have these skill sets with, 
they just never saw. They said, oh, what if it's not a disability? What if it's just a different way to learn to read? Oh, wow, what if? Right? What if? Because I can tell you, it probably is. But we yeah. can also, and, and I did give this example in my book, and it was a very interesting phenomenon. And I'm going to quick tell it to you because people might say, I don't understand how, why can't you just train the brain then to, to read the way we want it to read? I, okay, so when I was in school, for some reason, I wanted to have glasses. Of course, when I got glasses, I really didn't want glasses. But I wanted to have glasses. You know, we had those free eye exams. Uh-huh. And so I told myself, I'm going to purposely flunk it. Okay? Oh. I'm going to purposely flunk it because I want glasses. Okay? So I go in there, and I remember thinking, I, I, I remember this test. And in my mind, it was a lowercase e. That's what it was, not the uppercase e. It was, you know how they'd say, which, which direction is it facing, right or left or up or down? Maybe you didn't have those tests. <laughs> no, I, no, I know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so in my mind, it was a lowercase e. So I go to look, and I'm looking for the lowercase e, and I literally can't see anything. There's an object there, but because my brain had decided it was to be a lowercase e, I could not see it was uppercase. And I'm panicking now because I'm like, I really can't see it. <laughs> and I'm yeah. starting to guess willy-nilly, but I'm panicking because I thought I was going to do it purposely. But here I was flunking this test, surely, because I couldn't see the E. Well, it took about halfway through the test. My brain kind of unclouded itself, and then I saw it was an uppercase. So literally, when your brain is telling you to do one thing, it can actually help you or make you not see. Mm. I really couldn't see that there was an uppercase E there. How about It that? was a really interesting, and so I remembered that forever. Like, wow, my brain made me not see. Yeah. Because I was convinced of what I was supposed to see. And so if your brain is saying three-dimensional, 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 look for it, look for it, look for it, they might not be able to see. The two-dimensional that's on that paper. Yes. Yep. Or that's why it floats around or moves or it's fuzzy because their brain, some brains can't do it. Some brains might be able to. And that's where the whole, you know, so you just have to be really careful of basically training a right brain dominant learner to be a left brain processor, because since that's not natural, you're going to create a stunted way of, you may be able to do it, but it will be a stunted version of it. Gotcha. Well, that, it makes me think of like, like a, I don't know, it's almost like a new terminology needs to come about like brain blindness or something, you know, like a, um, how, how, or a blind spot that, is that happens when you're learning if you're not in the right environment for your brain dominance. Yes. And, and that's why, um, so I, I, I've said in my book, I'd love to see more research based on researchers being willing to see what a natural path to learning for a right brain dominant person is. But because research is done with school people, yeah, <laughs> that's why the research reflects what it does. We're mm. not taking people who have not been schooled. Gosh, that's so true. It's so true. That really muddies the research. It muddies the research. So you can't necessarily look at the research alone because they're not taking kids who have done a natural path. That's why, again, I told you last time, it was super, super important for me 
to write about the natural learning path. We can teach them tricks and strategies. I just think it's not fair Mm -hmm. instead of just having their natural learning path. Yeah. So the ideal way to uh, support our children is to stop with this idea that we have to create the environment first and then plug the kids into it. Let's look at the kids and then create the environment around them. So it's customizing versus standardizing. Yeah. So as it pertains to autism and the left brain, right brain thing, what was really interesting, so when I have three children with autism and, I, and they're across the spectrum from high functioning to moderate to, to more severe. And my high functioning one, when, you know, there's all these tests online for left brain, right brain stuff. Whenever he would test, he would always test out left brain. And, but I knew he was right brain dominant. (laughs) So autism is an interesting thing. I believe the, whatever we want to call autism, a disorder, a difference, whatever it is, um, brings in left brain traits, just like the female gene does. Because what is autism? What is some of the big factors of autism? They are, tend to be rigid in their thinking. They tend to want, um, structure and, or, um, predictability, right? Mm. Which is all left brain, right? Um, they tend to be sequential, um, able to, because they want to have a sequence. They can see patterns and, and such, but that's the autism side. The right brain side, almost, almost every right brain person I know has, I mean, every person with autism I know whose perseveration is, is a right brain perseveration, whether it's ceiling fans is a common one, um, which would be engine, uh, uh, like a, a mechanical. Yes. Mechanical. Uh, same with, uh, uh, trains, trains are common, um, and vacuum cleaners, um, and such like that. So, but they're in, in Lego and video games, very common in the autism world. What about so, movies or understand or knowing like characters in movies and obsessing over specific types of movies? Right. And, and, you know, remembering, visually re- being able to remember movies. Yes. Right? Okay. And be able to um, replay them in their minds. Um, that's all very right brain, but there's also this autism brings in a left brain factor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just found that interesting. And I kept saying, I know you're testing left brain, Mr. Builder's son, but you are right brain. <laughs> you're definitely right brain. So just be aware of that. It's one of those things. And it's not even that they're whole brained. Mm. actually because whole brain and, and a quick thing about that too every dominance brings in different careers right so right very right brain dominant has certain career paths that would be matched to their very right brainness and very left brain people have career paths that would match with their left brainness and then whole brain people have career paths that match their whole brain i find people with autism tend to match careers that are heavily right brain okay um, so it's, it's one of those things that, um, just like being a female who's right brain, just remember that there's certain attributes get brought in that could feel a little confusing. I just happen to be able to see what autism was and I could pull autism out and right brain out and see the difference. It was just an easier natural thing for me to be able to parse that out maybe as a left brain person, um, and deal with each of those separate um, elements. Okay. So I, that's one of the things I wanted to bring up. Autism itself is just a whole another category, but when it comes to left brain, right brain, that's what I wanted to 
to pay attention to that part. Okay. Well, and there's, there is some discussion about uh, Silicon Valley being filled with people who have her on the autism spectrum. Exactly. And do you think that's because it matches their need for order, but also their creativity? They can really pull both of those. Well, yeah. I mean, it's got all the, the, you know, there's so many people in the video game Mm -hmm. world, uh, careers that are right brain and, and then they recognize each other and say, I know who you are and I'm going (laughs) to hire you because the thing about, let's say my son who is in computer science and he is working for corporate America and he's just a workhorse. He does not want to be a manager. He knows that would be a weakness. He's a workhorse. Give me the work. I'm going to go at it. And I'm not going to be one chit-chatting with all the yeah. <laughs> my peers. And I'm just going to be cranking out the work for you. So there's a lot of benefits to having someone with autism with a skill set. For sure. Um, that, you know, now you don't want to necessarily have them in the uh, service industry. I see. <laughs> that se. one-on-one but, interpersonal. Yeah, you know what your strengths are, right? And and you're not going to serve the community because that's where you're probably going to not do as well. But if you're behind the scenes cranking out the work for a company, they can be real happy mm-hmm. about that. Same with video games. There's a lot of work that goes into video games. Meticulous, that meticulousness of the left brain side, right? Of all the details with the visual ability to to see the big picture. Mm. So Okay, that's really, that's so good to hear because it's also, I think what, may people may fall into the idea that my to, in order for my child to be successful my child who has autism to be successful they must be able to be in service to others in a in a sort of interpersonal more social way i'm not saying that those skills aren't important but it almost instead of making it the primary make it something that they understand but that doesn't have to be their day-to-day life would that be fair well yes and also you're going to be prone to, since there's obvious weaknesses when you see them young, mm-hmm. especially people want to intervene and, and you hear about, you know, early intervention is so important, but early intervention is, is important in certain ways and it can be detrimental in other ways. I created a strength-based environment, even for my kids with autism. And I took their things that they were what they call perseverations and I turned them into interests and, and I really, um, highlighted that because there's a time which is 11 to 13 to start working on weaknesses. Not that we didn't work on some of the weaknesses when they were younger, but particularly from 11 to 13, we started. And, and I remember my son saying, high functioning son, he said, he's thankful, first of all, that he was homeschooled because he knew he'd been, he would have been in special ed all his life. Yeah. And he would have only been focused on all his, his, his weaknesses. And I remember at 10, before he really real, realized what was going on with himself, he said, I am so smart. I am so intelligent. I have so many choices of what I can be when I grow up. Mm-hmm. And he listed off, you know, Lego builder, train engineer, you know, all these things. And I said, I know you are. And then, so when he got into 11, 13, when that brain shift happens at 12, and he was became aware and more aware of what his autism was and the, the weaknesses that came with it, he still was based, all of his imagery of himself was based on his strengths. So when he saw his weaknesses, he goes, oh, do we need to, we need to work on this. I said, yeah, let's go. And we could, but he did, it didn't, it didn't turn himself on himself. So this is a good segue. So this is a good segue because many of them are highly sensitive people with big emotions and they're going to be the ones that turn on themselves first. They're the ones that are going to call themselves stupid before you do. 
Mm. And not, they, not, just, not just kids with autism, but kids with that are right-brained. I'm talking about right-brained people now. Yeah. Okay. He didn't know because of his autism actually protected him from that. I but see. Now let's talk about typical right-brained people. They are sensitive. They are aware. And so they start seeing how you're feeling towards them and how you're not performing to the level that they think you're supposed to. And they're going to call themselves stupid first. Mm. And they're, and they're, oh, my child is saying they're stupid. And I know they're not. But you're creating an environment that makes them feel that way. So, and I always tell people, you got to be really, I mean, some people say, oh, no, but I didn't put any pressure on them to learn to read. I said, okay, so did you say things like, um, hey, you know, you want to go to the library? Oh, look, your, your cousin's reading. Or, you know, it, it, sometimes it's these subtle ways of putting pressure about reading as an important thing, for instance. Um, but I raised six boys and one girl, and in particular boys who are right brain dominant and just boys. <laughs> I feel like my most important skill set I was teaching them between five years old and 10 years old was emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting to talk to my children and my husband too. I'm not an emotive person. I'm very logical because I'm very, very left brain. And so that's why I could have some ch seven children, first of all, yeah. <laughs> because they can have all these emotions coming at me. I'm not feeling it. I didn't know that right brain people feel other people's emotions. Gosh, Cindy, that is crazy that you're saying that right now, because I have all my life thought I was going to have five, six kids. Like I just, not all my life, I should say that, but there was a time where I was like, I want a big family. Mm -hmm. But then I also was like, I can't do it. I mm -hmm. cannot mentally do it. And I'm like this very moment, I feel like a lightning bolt just struck and <laughs> made me absolutely aware of the fact that I think I was entirely too feely and I would take on everybody's experiences and feelings and emotions. Yeah. And it would be almost impossible for me to handle. That's so right. holy I, moly. I, <laughs> yes. And, and you know, what's interesting, it was super important for me that my husband wanted every child we had. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I always make sure he knew, okay, we're going to have another child. You're all, you're all in. Yep. Well, at one point he said to me, well, if it had been up to me, we wouldn't have had this many children. I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, it had been really important to me that he wanted every child. And he said, no, 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 you're not hearing me. If I was the one in charge yeah, and I had to raise them as the primary caregiver, I wouldn't have had this many children because I couldn't have handled it. Mm. But as a support person, I can do it. Gosh, see, that's, that's so powerful because that, I mean, I'm like right now thinking of so many families and people and wondering now, like, I'm really going to pay attention. I'm going to go around with a notebook and be like, I'm observing you because there's people who have like six, seven kids and you, you a great example. And I'm just like, how do they do it? How do they do it? I'm so it's because amazed. of my emotion, my, my ability to process emotion very easily. I mm. can take on a lot of people's emotions and wow. I can stay stable and then I'll drop for a second. Oh, I, can sure. hold, I can hold that drop and, okay. and manage that drop. Okay. Whereas what, what I've discovered with my children and my husband helped me understand it and my older children helped me understand it is I called it that they have a, an emotion house. Okay. So when something triggers an emotion, so let's say, because one of the things as a left brain person living with right brain, here, okay, I'm going to say this. 
once you understand how right brain people learn, it actually is quite easy to figure out. Mm. But living with them is a whole different thing. Okay. So when I did conference talks, I did learning with the right brain child and living with the right brain child. Because <laughs> that's important to know the difference. <laughs> it's a huge difference. And this yeah. emotion's one of them. Because I would always get, especially from my husband, you're yelling at me. I'm like, I'm not yelling. Do you want me to tell, show you what yelling looks like? <laughs> wow. It's because of the emotions that if I have, they're very sensitive to, well, um, Criticism. Criticism. Thank you. Yeah. Criticism. Yeah. When they, what's happening is you get criticized. That's, that's turning on their emotion house. Okay. And it's going. And even if I then explain to them, oh, this is not what I meant by that criticism. I meant blank, blank, blank. Right. Mm-hmm. And in their logic, they're hearing me. They're saying, okay, I'm hearing you. Now it makes sense. But my emotion house has been triggered. Even though my head is now saying, I understand the logic that you weren't intending to trigger me. I can't just turn off that emotion. It's going to have to play itself out. Now, you can manage the play out, but you can't say that now that I have the logic behind what triggered my emotion, I can't just turn it off. Yeah. So it's, it's a matter of play out for and, a minute. And so you have to recognize that some people might need a little bit more time and, and you could just yes. stop what you're doing and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to stop this conversation. Yep. We're going to pick it up in a little bit. Like, let yep. me know when you're ready. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That, that timeout thing I think is for right brain people. It's not supposed to be a punishment. It's time out from the situation. Let you work through the emotion part of it. And then when you're done with the emotion part, and then you mm-hmm. can hear me and not get triggered, you know what I'm saying? And then, of course, I'm being aware of the trigger points. Um, I'm going to call it a nervous system moment. You know, you just have to allow it. Yeah, when my husband and I were married, I mean, when we would get into arguments, I wanted to, let's hash it out right now. And he'd say, give me a minute, give me a minute. <laughs> and it, it would just take me, it took me a while because I thought, no, you're trying to avoid it, right? No, you're trying to avoid it. We have to hash it out right now. No, it was absolutely the difference between right brain and wow. left brain. I need a minute. I need to process my thoughts. And then I can come to the table where I process it. I I put all my stuff processing out as we're talking, which is not always good for a right brain person. Yeah. So you need to hash it out. Words, thought. Yes. Words is how I hash out my thoughts. So I literally have to find somebody else, somebody who safely can process all my words, including the bad, the wrong words. Right. Like, because I have to put it all out to hear it, and then I correct it. Putting that on the right brain person can be difficult for them, because they're hearing me putting all of it out, even though I'm going to correct half of it. <laughs> yeah, you're overstimulating their nervous system. That's what yes. I was trying to say. So yes. you need like a nervous system yes. break. Yes. Yeah. And then you might need to find another way to process, whether talk to yourself, <laughs> journal, whatever, to pr- find another left brain friend. Yeah. Hey, left brain friend, can I chat with you? Right. Now everybody's going to go and, and put a list of their friends. And now, are you right brain or left brain? Left brain? Right. <laughs> Have a nice little- and then I can go to my right brain people and say, okay, I think I've got it. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> I've got what I have to say. Okay. <laughs> Without overwhelming you. So it's, it's a relationship thing. Knowing the right brain, left brain stuff can be relational. Um, my 
and, and you know how they say opposites attract? Mm. I think it's left brain, right brain opposites. That's what's a, that's the opposite that's attracting. Ooh. Sometimes it's extrovert, introvert, but a lot of times it's right brain, left brain. And that's why if, when you kind of like uh, what women are from Venus, men are from Mars, I think that's what he was trying to describe was the different attributes. But when you look at those attributes, they're going to be right brain, left brain. So an example I remember from my daughter. So she married a left brain person. So he had asked her, hey, will you do the dishes? Will you run a dish load? She goes, yeah. And she was in the middle of maybe a video game she was doing. I don't know what it was. So she was going to get to it. <laughs> but when he said that, what he meant in his left brain mind was, yeah, I want it done now. Yes. Right? Oh, my so, <laughs> so all of a sudden she sees him doing the dishes. Honey, I'm, I was going to do it. No, that's fine. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But that's the arguments that can happen. A right brain person is like, yeah. I said, I'm going to do it, but you know, I, I, I'm a process person. Let me finish my process. And then that, I will get to that. Whereas a left brain person is product based. So when they've asked you something, they usually are not meaning tomorrow. <laughs> They're talking about right now. We got to check that. We're talking about right now. Yeah. So he's probably mad. Like, ah, can't believe she just won't do it. You yes. Know? I think you might be saving marriages in this podcast. Yeah. Well, that, that and the um, love languages are huge oh, yeah. marriage savers. Yes. And I tell you. Because of my left brain, right brain, a lot of my counseling to them going into their marriage was about their difference between left brain and right brain. Yes. Another example was decision-making. He wanted support documents about the decisions. Here's my logical reasons. I'm going to give you three reasons why we should make this decision. Okay. And then she would say, but my intuition is that we should do this because mm. they're intuitive thinkers. They can't always come up with the reasons they know in their gut they know the reasons are there but they sometimes can't verbalize it they image they image it okay and and so she said it wasn't a bad thing she said he he pushed her out of her comfort zone to start having to you know she came from a family that valued her intuition mm -hmm. <laughs> and now she has a spouse that does not yeah <laughs> okay doesn't have enough experience to trust it. Yes, I think that's so that's so fair. Doesn't have enough experience to trust it. So she started learning to try to get some facts for him to back up her intuition. And she said it wasn't a bad thing, but I do feel like I'm glad that she had a base that her intuition was valued. Uh-huh. So that she knew that and and then eventually he learned to trust her intuition because often it was right. Yeah. But it took time to have enough experience yeah. to learn to trust that. And staying curious um, and open to learning more about yourself through other people. Because I think, yes. you know, that's what happens in relationship. That's the point of relationships and being with other people is that you're not supposed to, you don't grow in isolation. You grow by being around other people. Right. And, and, and that's why you tend to marry your opposite because they have traits that you need. Yeah. That's a right. And they have traits you need and you have traits they need. Okay. Um, so it's going to be the same thing with processing their emotions. So you have exploders and you have imploders, you know, so oh. one of my sons would break down and cry. And when he became a teenager, he really, really wanted to fix that because, of course, in our culture, you know, men crying is not considered still okay to some level. It was okay with us, but he really wanted to fix. He said, I'm okay to be sensitive, but I don't have to always show it that way. 
Yeah. So yeah. he worked on it when he became a teenager and a young adult. He said, I just don't want to cry every time I'm being pushed. Yeah. You know, in the workforce, that's probably not going to look good. I think that, I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. And I also think that there's a, there's too many, too many people that don't understand that and would not know what to do with it. So right. it just would make things very tricky. And and so the highly sensitive child really helps explain a lot of that. And that book is an awesome book. And then you've got um, Exploders, which unfortunately is more accepted in the world for boys, but it's still not acceptable, mm-hmm. you know, uh, strategy to explode when your emotions are too high or not understood. Um, the Explosive Child has a, is a great book for that. Okay. Um, it kind of, it, it's really does a, it, it categorizes basket A, basket B, basket C. Some the behaviors you just don't deal with right now. Just leave that alone. And then these other, you know, on the A and the C, you just ignore those. And B is where the teaching moment is. Okay. And he explains that through the whole book. That one was, I, I actually ended up doing that naturally without knowing about the book. And then I found the book and said, oh, this is exactly what I did. How about that? It <laughs> just was an intuitive thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I... Again, because I didn't have the emotions that I was having to deal with myself, I, I found it fascinating to watch their emotions and say, hmm, why are they doing that? Let's see if I can. And yeah, I also did when I was a teenager, I, I had gone through some emotion stuff and I fixed my own emotion stuff, probably because I was highly left brain, so I could do that. And I remember what my process was. So I remember valuing that the process of understanding your emotions and 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 managing your emotions takes time and that there are these various process that you can go through. But it was really important for me to have them learn to identify because what happens is a lot of times um, males in particular take all emotions and convert them to anger. If I'm, uh, if I am embarrassed, I turn it to anger. If I'm hurt, I turn it to anger. If I'm sad, I turn it to anger (laughs) because Mm -hmm. anger has been shown as an acceptable emotion for a boy to show. Yeah. And so I, it was really important for me to say, you know, well, actually you're just embarrassed. So let's talk, talk about the emotion of being embarrassed or let's talk about the emotion of being sad. It was a real big win for my youngest. Um, cause he would not show any emotion except anger. But when I could, he didn't cry till he was 10. Oh my goodness. 10. It was a huge win. Cause I kept, I kept saying the emotion, you're sad. You're sad. You're or you're embarrassed. You're, and I remember him sitting there fighting. I literally could see it on his face fighting. Do I do I feel sad or do I go to anger? Do I feel sad or do I go to anger? And he chose to allow himself to feel sad and he cried. Mm. And I was like, yes. Oh <laughs> wow! In my mind, I was trying to keep it cool because then that, that was probably making sure. convert it to anger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was like a huge deal. Some some just really have a hard time that's a, those are deeper it's almost like i don't know why anger is easier to process than sad or embarrassed or well, hurt i think i think about it from a survival perspective like if you look at the evolution of our brains and mm. you know it, i think about it as far as like the anger is something that would get an immediate response to either shut down a situation or to be able to escape it whereas the nuance in in the shame and and embarrassment all that kind of stuff it's not quite the same you wouldn't have as much um, awareness from someone else or 
uh, patience from others to work with you through your shame. It might be just, I'm angry. So then they just like, everybody just gets out of the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, right. that's a quick way to respond and a quick way to express. Right. But some of the other things that happen as a right brain dominant person when it comes to emotions is they often have to like the person that is their teacher. If they don't, and, or they have to like them and then they have to know the teacher likes them. Okay. Huge. If they don't think the teacher likes them, they will not perform well. Ah. They have to feel liked. And if you ask any right brain person, they'll say, oh, yep. If I, if I knew someone didn't like me, then I would usually behave because it's like, okay, you don't like me, then let me show you the reason why you shouldn't like me. Yeah. Um, but it's really often, it just actually shuts them down more. That's the ADHD response to it. Is, you know, let me show you why you shouldn't like me then. The the sensitive side is that I'm just crushed. Yes. I, I can't perform under somebody that doesn't like me. Wow. Um, well, and I, I'm going to use this little example that just came flying in. My daughter um, liked to play the piano on her own. She taught herself songs. She could play by hearing. She'd hear something and then replicate it. Well, we had someone who is a very close family member come and um, kind of do some lessons with her because, you know, it was fun. She was thinking it would be great. But once his tone switched to make it seem like he was telling her what to do and he gave her a look, she shut down right then and there and was like, I'm done and did not ever ask to do that with him again, because in her mind, it was about fun and play. And I trust you and we have an already existing relationship. But if you are going to any way, like, um, I guess not shame her, but uh, like judge her, that was kind of what it was yes. like, like a yes. judging sort of way. Then she yes. immediately said, "Never mind, I'm done. And I thought I was like, wow. Gosh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. and but I think that's exactly why. Because in her mind, and the same thing with art, she was like, "I like to do art. I don't like people telling me when I have to do art and how I have to do it." And right. you know, if I want to learn, I'm going to learn, but I don't want somebody trying to dictate it. Right. That's why it was really important for me to find practicing musicians mm-hmm. or practicing artists, not teachers. Right. Because then that teacher part, and like you said, it it shuts down the the dynamic, uh, just from the emotion of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Um, that's a good distinction, yeah. Cindy. Let's say that again. So you want somebody who maybe is a practicing of whatever they're doing. Practicing musicians. Okay. And in certain places that are offering music lessons, for instance, or art lessons, hire practicing musicians as the teachers. So I remember with my, my music, uh, my my builder son, who was good at piano, he taught himself till he was a moderate player, and I knew he was it was time for him to get a mentor. And I I looked long and hard for people if they were a teacher and said, oh no, I think he needs to know this and this first. I'd go, nope, not for us. Mm-hmm. You know, he he did a lot by ear. He had a photographic memory from being able to see the um, music and then not need the music because it was in his head. Um, so I wanted someone who would value a person who can play by ear while teaching him slowly, let's say the note names, if that was important to you, but behind the scenes, not in front of it. Yes. And okay. so I found a practicing musician in a place and a, a great example of this was they would come in and the, the person was playing music and Eli would c- come in and he'd sit down and start playing next to him because they'd be two pianos, right? 
and they'd just start playing off of each other. And, and so he would play, the instructor would play something, he'd imitate it. It was really a cool thing. They did this whole lesson. <laughs> they didn't get to the music that they had been practicing. And, and, the, and the instructor, oh, oh gosh, it's time. You know, the person's, you know, <laughs> we lost track of time. Yeah. So he jumps up, ends the lesson, goes out, comes in, he says, they're not here yet. Let's keep going. Oh, wow. <laughs> and this was your, your 30 minute lesson. And it was just so fun. He had a to great time too. Yeah. Lost and just playing mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. That is very um, cool. But yes, that's, and, and, and my son had been chosen for an art mural um, being done in the city of High Point. And um, he was the only homeschooled person. He was the youngest and I remember saying he'd never painted before. He'd only drawn, and it was a painting, painting a mural. So he got his own little thing. So he was painting it. It was good. And I asked the instructor who was over the, pro- the project, I said, do you think he should take lessons? Because he'd never taken lessons. He was 13 at the time. She goes, no, it would ruin him. How about that? <laughs> See, I love that, that they're able, they're self-aware enough to understand the difference between that person who wants the instruction Versus, you know, that, that person who, who's, who's seeking it out themselves, but then they have that natural inclination to just pick and choose and be creative in a way that matches them. Right. The other thing that happens with emotions, with right brain people, and that can be something that you have to watch for is misinterpretation. Okay. They're so sensitive. They misinterpret what other people, like what my husband, you're yelling at me. It's like, I'm not yelling. They would do it for other children too. He doesn't like me. Well, what makes mm. you think he doesn't like you? What, what are you seeing? And then they can explain to me and then I can, I can reinterpret what they had seen and interpreted wrong. Um, I saw that, especially when they were young, five, six, seven. Um, they might, you know, respond a certain way. An example, my son was at a play date at five. Um, the mother normally didn't let them play in the big brother's room but they were at school, so she let them. And then, but she only wanted them to be down there for, let's say, 30 minutes. So she called them up at a certain point. She said, all right, boys, let's come on up out of there. Well, my son starts throwing a fit. <laughs> and this friend looks at me like, mm-hmm. what in the world? Why is he throwing a fit, right? I knew exactly what it was. I went down there and I said, you've done nothing wrong. Everything, you know, you were fine down here. It's just that this is the big brother's room. She normally doesn't let you know, her, the little brother play down here, but she decided to let you guys for about 30 minutes. And that's what she was comfortable with, but you had done nothing wrong. Oh, okay. In his mind that they were being called out because they had done something wrong. And that just went all over him. with that. Yeah. When I think yeah. this is such a good, um, uh, another point to drive home is the importance of the parent and the adult who has a lot of knowledge, who has the ability to see the bigger picture, helping the kids walk through their emotions and their feelings, because there is this, um, a large conversation that I do think is very important for us to have about recognizing our children's feelings and helping them and honoring them, but not allowing, let, let me, let me figure out how to word this. Cause this is kind of a sensitive topic. <laughs> There's a difference between honoring feelings and validating them and also allowing them to rule somebody's life. So right. you can have your feelings, and, and but yet you can have a conversation about them because you might, like you said, you might be pulling in pieces of information that aren't accurate or you might be making an assumption that's not true, not factually true. 
Um, and so when you have an adult who can walk through those emotions with the kids, that helps them, I think, become a more emotionally intelligent and resilient. Right. Because like you said, it's it's letting them still feel the feelings, the sad, the mm-hmm. hurt, you know, and walk through that and not always having to feel like you have to fix everything. Um, but also because they can be so, so emotive that, mm-hmm. you know, we need to help them have the skills and strategies, but it does take time. And a good book, um, uh, it's a parenting book, but inside this parenting book is a chart about anger. And it is a chart that goes from the most serious anger to the lightest anger that he says, when you're helping someone with anger, you can't go from, if they're at level 11, you can't get them to one. You have to go through 10, 9, 8, 7, hmm. 6, 5, 4. And then they're going to stay in one through three probably. And that was an important distinction for me to see because I had a lot of explosive children. Now, okay, they're here, but they're actually improving even though it still looks bad. Yeah. So, so them doing something physical like throwing something at a wall is... Uh, is a higher step than cursing. So now mm-hmm. I'm mad and I curse, and I don't like the fact that they just cursed, right? But they didn't throw something at the wall, so that's actually an improvement. I see. So I've got to celebrate the fact that he cursed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of throwing at the wall. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. So when you see that they're, mm. when I got to see uh, as a left brain person, see this chart of, you know, less to most and see where he was falling and help him get to the next level down was so helpful to celebrate the steps towards Mm -hmm. better strategies. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, we have to help our kids be, uh, we have to empower them to understand their emotions versus allowing their emotions to power over them. Yeah. And, And different stages, require different things. You know, when you're five, yeah, six, sure. and seven, it's a little harder yep. than when you're nine, 10, and 11. But you still start the strategy development, even if they can't completely access it. I found that by 11 to 13, they can access their skills about 70 to 80% of the time. And frankly, we all only access our skills about 70 to 80% of the time. You know, no one's going to be perfect. So that's no. the other thing to always remember you can't sit there and say they can never be angry again. Yeah, that's unrealistic. They're going to be angry. <laughs> it's unrealistic. So how are they handling it? Or how quickly can they handle it back? But there's, it, it kind of goes with the brain development again. Five to seven, they're in their their core. Eight to 10, they're transitioning. 11 to 13, everything's integrating so they can. But the skills and strategies had to be taught even if they can't fully access it all the time. So let's say five to seven, they access it 25% of the time. And eight to 10, they're accessing mm-hmm. it about 50% of the time. And then 11 to 13, they're accessing yeah. about 75 to 80% of the time. And that's where I'm getting to. As long as I see a progression of access, yeah. you know, then then, we're, then we're, we're moving through. That's why I said five to 10 was a huge, huge part of our homeschooling was emotional intelligence. That, that was one of the biggest reasons homeschooling was so appealing to me because I knew how emotional kids can be and what kind of emotional intelligence they need to develop in those earlier years that can be kind of difficult to do in the context of all these other kids who are also trying to develop and build their emotional intelligence, but they don't have that one-on-one guidance and they can't utilize an adult who can help them walk through it always. Right. And, and, and motive 
matters in understanding the motive of your child. So a quick, another quick example is my ball story I tell. I can, I could have told my first child and said, you know, there's a ball, don't touch that ball. Okay. <laughs> he would have pitched a fit, grabbed that ball and, and used it. And the reason he would have done it was, wow, why was she so mean about telling me not to use this ball? I wasn't going to use the ball, but now that she's sitting there being mm -hmm. so nasty about it, and in his mind, that's how it came across, then I'm going to use the ball because it's, it's a matter of principle at this point. Uh, it's a right and wrong thing. You're just yeah. not doing you didn't, you, you didn't trust that I would not do it, right? <laughs> but then, so if I explain to him, hey, this is somebody's special ball, <clears throat> and you know they would prefer us not to use it, he'd be fine. But if I just said, hey, just don't use that ball. But if I said down this to my youngest child and say, don't touch that ball, he'd go over there, march over there, grab the ball, look me in the face. Mm -hmm. He's like, don't mm -hmm. tell me what I can and cannot do. <laughs> so there's different motives. So the first motive was, I'm just offended that you didn't trust that I would yeah. not understand, right? And the other one is like, mm -hmm. no, you're not going to always, you're, you're not going to tell me. If anything, you've made it more enticing now because you told me no. Yes. And <laughs> Yeah, the, 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 what they both did was the same thing. Yeah. But completely different reasons why they did it. So completely different reasons what I'm going to teach them about how to deal with the emotion right. they were feeling. I'm going to have to find out what motivates this child. And, and like I said, highly sensitive. I knew my oldest was highly sensitive that way. And I know my youngest is very ADHD, uh, ODD, kind of like in your face, don't you know, I don't like to be told what to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like two different things to, to help with skills and strategies. Yeah, no, I love that. And then, um, so remind me about your book as far as the sections on emotional intelligence. I know that there's things sprinkled throughout. I think it is sprinkled throughout. I talk about, I mean, you're probably going to see it in some of the areas like the giftedness. I talk about the emotions there for sure. Cause gifted, um, people tend to have, uh, are highly aware and that can bring in a different set of emotions. Um, ADHD probably has some in there. Um, autism probably has some in there. Um, so it's the different, uh, and I don't know if I put a chapter in there about highly sensitive separate. And I, I'm sure I've got, I'm pretty sure I've got some posts at my, on your website. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Cindy, <laughs> we got a lot in, we did good. We did so good. I can't help but to laugh. We talked for a very long time and probably could have kept going. Cindy has such a deep understanding of child development and what it looks like throughout the ages. So I encourage you to check out her book, The Right Side of Normal, and also her website of the same name. The show notes will have links to the various topics and ideas we covered, as well as a link to my new community that I'm starting um, on Monday, the Barefoot Playground. It is a place to come and play with ideas and ask questions, be curious, and learn alongside other parents, other educators, family members, anybody who's interested in learning more about child development and supporting their children through the ages. If you have any questions, let me know, reach out, please. And as always, stay curious, stay connected, and stay aware. Until next time. <laughs>